In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels, which will be entering a nationwide lockdown on Sunday night. And I'm Colm O'Mungain, RTE's deputy foreign editor here in Dublin, already on level five restrictions. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and here in Dublin. This week, EU and UK negotiators have finally entered what looks like a tunnel or a submarine, depending on your preference, as both sides make a final frantic push for a free trade agreement sometime in the next week or so. As information is relatively restricted, we're going to take a look at the hidden threat to the all-island economy. What happens when on January 1st, Northern Ireland falls out of some 60 EU free trade agreements? We look in detail at the highly technical but also highly political issue of rules of origin and why they could cause havoc to some supply chains that run north and south on the island of Ireland and why it's suddenly become an issue. Yes, the Northern Ireland Protocol was supposed to protect the all-island economy, but there's an anomaly in the withdrawal agreement and the Irish government has been making some waves on it. But gently, gently, it's terribly sensitive. Tony, what's wrong and why now? The protocol, column. that's what's wrong. The protocol, as we know, after three years of gruelling negotiations between the EU and UK, finally dealt with that problem of the Irish border. So, because... The UK is leaving the Single Market and Customs Union. There has to be a border somewhere that deals with checks and controls on goods going into the Irish Republic, which is part of the single market, obviously. And they have to do that to make sure that there is no border on the island of Ireland. Now, that's all been sorted. As we know, it's been tricky to implement the protocol. That's all very political and difficult for the British government, and that's work that's ongoing. However, what the protocol didn't really deal with is the issue of European Union free trade agreements around the world and what happens to goods or ingredients that are produced in Northern Ireland and go across the border to companies in the south of Ireland who then sell the goods on to the rest of the world under EU free trade agreements. Like what? Uh, Give us an example of of where that might happen and where they might go. Yeah, so there, I suppose there are two quite salient and interesting examples. One is dairy and uh, milk and butter and cheese and milk powder and sports nutrition, all of that. You'll recall that dairy was the exemplary example of an all-island supply chain that ran north and south. You had a very efficient model of millions of litres of milk being produced in the north, processed in the south, converted into very lucrative products like cheese, infant formula, butter. Some of those products would go back over the border, some would go to the UK, but a lot would go to markets around the world. Now, the problem basically is that the protocol that was negotiated by Boris Johnson was different to the one that Theresa May negotiated, and different because Theresa May's protocol was going to have all of the UK 
in a customs union with the rest of the EU. So none of this was going to be a problem. However, Boris Johnson comes along and says, OK, Northern Ireland will keep producing goods that will be suitable for the single market, the European single market, and it will follow EU customs rules, so you won't need to have a hard border. However, there's no provision in the protocol to deal with that issue of goods that are produced in Northern Ireland or what they're called what they call inputs or ingredients or components produced in Northern Ireland that are a vital part of that supply chain that then produces uh, goods for export and as we know dairy is an extremely lucrative export market for the island of Ireland, milk, butter, infant formula, all of those products are sold across the EU, but also beyond to the United States, to China, to Africa, to the Middle East. And the problem here is that because Northern Ireland remains in the customs territory of the UK, which was, of course, Boris Johnson's big demand last year, anything that's produced in Northern Ireland is going to be regarded as a British product or a British good. So from the 1st of January, those goods will technically not be entitled to form part of those supply chains, which go on then to export goods under EU third country free trade agreements. So So that's basically it in a nutshell. So Irish milk that's mixed with Northern Irish milk that subsequently becomes some other form of cheese is regarded as being adulterated by a non-EU product and therefore what? What's the net effect of that happening? It's complicated because it depends on where that product is ending up. In simple terms, if you have a free trade agreement that insists that everything that you as the EU is sending to, say, Japan or South Korea or Canada. When it comes to dairy, 100% of the dairy product that Canadians will buy and eat must be EU-certified cheese or sports nutrition or infant formula. That's because what they call modern free trade agreements that the EU has been negotiating with Japan and Canada and South Korea have this thing called rules of origin. So for something like dairy, everything that is in a particular category, say dairy, must be from the EU. So Because Northern Ireland is regarded as being part of the UK's customs territory, then in those kinds of free trade agreements, none of that input from Northern Ireland will be effectively legal. So so that's that's the problem. So the truck that leaves the co-op in Monaghan and collects from farmers on both sides of the border, those products are now disqualified for exports to countries with those rules of origin stipulations in them because the milk is now mixed in with non-EU milk. Yeah, that, that's that's precisely it. The thing is that when we talk about the, the 60 trade agreements that Northern Ireland will fall out of in January, they're not all modern free trade agreements, to coin a phrase. You have free trade agreements with, with Nigeria, with sub-Saharan Africa, with the Middle East, with Mexico, you have free trade agreements with China, well, you have trade arrangements with China. And those typically do not place a big constraint on where all of the parts of the product originate. So so they don't particularly mind if the EU milk that's sent from Ireland or the EU infant formula or powdered milk that is sent from Ireland has some part of it that comes from from Northern Ireland. It's important to distinguish when we talk about free trade agreements and we talk about preferential access to one market or another, what we're talking about is, is tariffs and the ability to sell those goods into, say, Japan or Nigeria or 
West Africa um, right, so tariff what, free. So what's the difference if it's if it's all EU goods, say for example, going to a country where there's a free trade agreement with rules of origin stipulation in them, as opposed to a mixed product where all of the product doesn't come from the EU? What's the tariff differential in terms of how that product would be treated? Well, so long as a free trade agreement gives you preferential access, usually that means zero tariffs or or very low tariffs. Whether it's a free trade agreement between the EU and, say, Morocco or or Nigeria. So long as the agreement details that X products are entitled to enter our market tariff-free and they don't particularly have a rules of origin constraint, then there's no problem. The problem arises when you have a free trade agreement which specifies that all of the milk, all of the cheese or all of the infant formula must be EU. That's when this really bites on the, the all-island supply chain or value chain when it comes to dairy. Are there any other examples of products that are exported in quite a quantity from Ireland that takes in components from around the country or around the island, should well, I say? Well, funnily enough, there, there was a paper that was commissioned by the Department for the Economy in Northern Ireland. And it was written by Martina Lawless, who is a research professor at the ESRI in Dublin. And she was asked to look at the impact of Brexit on Northern Ireland companies that that provide inputs or, say, components or ingredients across the border to southern companies that would then avail of an EU third country free trade agreement. And she found that about a quarter of those companies which export across the border would export to companies that depend on an EU free trade deal across the world. So you could say that 25% of the trade is at risk or is tangled up in this this particular problem. Now, a lot of it, again, is built around the dairy sector, but also one very interesting sector is is whiskey, and it's interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, Irish whiskey is, I suppose, well, it lays claim to be the oldest form of of whiskey manufacture in the world. The Irish Whiskey Association says that they've had all island supply chains since 1900. Right, and never argue with the man with whiskey. Absolutely, especially with that kind of, of legacy and claim to, to greatness. And not only that, Irish whiskey is recognised by the European Union and the UK as a distinct geographical indica- indicator. In other words, it's a protected product so that... You can't make uh, Irish whiskey you know, in the US to, to the Jemison recipe. You can't make recipe. Irish whiskey anywhere else. Yeah. In, in, absolutely. Even if you're Irish-American, it's, it's forbidden. It's, strictly speaking, a protected product under EU law, and the UK has agreed to that. So that means the notion of whiskey being made on an all-island basis is currently protected in, in that sense. So that means that you know a lot of these new distilleries that have that have set up in the last 10 20 years they get ingredients from both sides of the border in fact 26% of all whiskey that was sold last year relied on ingredients from both sides of the border and is whiskey uh, that would a loophole like barley then? and malt if you have northern irish whiskey like bushmills and whiskey from the south like jemison all of which can benefit from the irish whiskey designation is whiskey then somewhat different to dairy in that it's an established brand all ireland with an EU-approved designation already? Well, you would think so. And that was certainly the argument that the Irish Whiskey Association made to the European Commission when 
this issue of the, the protocol and its lack of protection for EU free trade agreements for northern inputs. That was what they argued. Surely, because we're protected by the EU as an all-island product, surely we can avail of EU free trade agreements around the world. Again, whiskey is produced on both sides of the border. It's a blended product. 95% of Irish whiskey is blended. But here's the thing. If Northern Ireland cannot avail of EU free trade agreements, then any whiskey that is produced in Ireland and exported under these modern free trade agreements, and, and one in particular that the whiskey fraternity is keen on is the EU-Australia free trade agreement. If there is a significant amount of the Irish whiskey that comes from Northern Ireland, whether it's barley or malt or whatever, it will attract a tariff. So there you can see the problem of a kind of a something that is driving a wedge between two parts of Ireland, which has for over 100 years had this all-island supply chain. And this is something they're very worried about. And even if all of the whiskey is produced in the Republic, but it's bottled in Northern Ireland under the EU-Australia free trade agreement, which is currently being negotiated, that whiskey would not qualify for preferential access. Right. In other words, for tariff-free access, it, it would be hit by a 5% tariff. Now, we're recording this shortly before 8 o'clock on the 30th of October, on the cusp of Halloween and all the attendant horrors. How did this particular horror only come to light at this late stage in the negotiations? Or did somebody notice it before and it was just simply brushed over? It was entirely noticed before, column, And that's because, if you, if you remember, let, let's go back a year ago, we had the famous meeting between Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar in the Wirral outside Liverpool, where they cooked up this, this new revised Irish protocol. Now, until then, everybody had been on the sidelines watching both sides negotiate the backstop, negotiating the original protocol, Theresa May's checkers deal, the the UK-wide customs union. And in all of those iterations, the question of EU free trade agreements for Northern Ireland producers was never a problem. But then suddenly, this deal was cooked up between Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar in the Wirral. And two weeks later, the deal was done. And everybody scrambled to find out what it meant. And those eagle-eyed business representatives in Northern Ireland who were very keen to keep these EU free trade pathways open went to both the British government and the European Commission and said, OK, we're kind of understanding this new withdrawal agreement, this new protocol. Does this mean we can still avail of EU third country free trade agreements? And according to the business organisations I've spoken to, the answer was yes. There were officials from Stormont who were also at some of these meetings and they were somewhat more circumspect saying, well, it wasn't a complete black and white promise. It wasn't ruled out, but the door wasn't left wide open either. Fast forward to earlier this year, the protocol has been ratified by the House of Commons and the European Parliament and that the first meetings are taking place to set up how the Northern Ireland, this new Northern Ireland protocol would be implemented. And at that point, the signals from the European Commission were a lot more negative. In fact, at a couple of meetings of business organisations and the European Commission in Dublin in March and then during the lockdown in April over, I assume, a Zoom call or, or whatever, the European Commission made it quite clear that Northern Ireland would not qualify to take part in these EU free trade agreements, either existing 
or future ones. And what happened? Uh, and if, that then was they, a, a real problem. Was it was it a breakdown in trust? Were they concerned that other ingredients would be brought into Northern Ireland and subsequently introduced into the European Union supply chain? Was it something to do with the breakdown in trust that occurred around the time of the Internal Markets Bill? What was the catalyst that made the European side turn so negative towards this when Northern Irish business had understood heretofore that they would still benefit from third country free trade agreements? The catalyst, as far as I can see from from talking to quite a few people and trying to kind of disentangle this particular issue because it seems to me to be really out of character given the support that the European Commission, Michel Barnier, gave to Ireland throughout the withdrawal agreement period. And suddenly business organisations in Ireland who were saying, look, you know, the protocol is there to protect the all-island economy, and yet you're telling us that our supply chains in dairy and whiskey and some other electrical manufacturing is going to be, those supply chains are going to be disrupted. What's the reason? Ostensibly, there was some signalling from, from Brussels that the EU would have to go back to all of its existing free trade partners and say, well, we have this new protocol now, which means that Northern Ireland is legally part of the UK's customs territory. It used to be part of the EU's customs territory. Do you mind if we keep including Northern Ireland's products and goods and ingredients as part of these our existing free trade arrangements? So in one sense, the Commission is arguing, you know, this is going to be extremely difficult for us because if we go back and try and reopen all these trade agreements, People are going those to use trade that partners as might say, yeah, they, they might say, well, we, we'd like some changes as well. Thank you very much. Now, I think that's something of a smokescreen here. To me, the real reason why the Commission is getting tough on this issue is because of the real sensitivity at the heart of the trade negotiations between the EU and the UK. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when both sides started the free trade negotiations, the UK proposed that you would have a broad acceptance when it comes to rules of origin on both sides. Uh, So a car manufactured in the UK can source component parts from a variety of different areas. When is that a UK car and when is it a car made up of too many parts from a country with which the European Union doesn't have an agreement? Would that be it in... in Well, well you're you're somewhat jumping the gun there. I mean, the initial proposal was what they call bilateral accumulation. So what does that mean? Well, the UK was saying to the EU... If our manufacturers make a product that is British, but say we use 20 or 30 or 40% of inputs or components from Slovakia or Germany or whatever, will you still accept that as a British product when we are selling into the single market? Now, this is a standard way of dealing with free trade agreements and the, the rules of origin question. And the EU said, fine, we're happy to do that. Anything that we sell into your market could have British components. Now, the UK went further and said... Could we also use components that come from somewhere like Japan or Turkey and call those components British? Because after all, you guys in Europe, you also have a free trade agreement with Japan and Turkey. And the EU said, no, we're not going to accept that. Now, this came to the fore in September when David Frost, the UK's chief negotiator, had to write to the car industry in the UK and say, this idea of what's called diagonal accumulation. So in other words, can we have this interchangeability of components because there's a three-way free trade relationship there. We have a free trade agreement with you guys. You have a free trade agreement with us. We both have free trade agreements with these other countries. Can we all 
say, hey, these are all, these products are all fine. And in the UK, when a car is being assembled, the EU would ex- expect that 55% of that car is made up of British components. Now, the way cars are assembled in the UK, it's only between 20 and 25% British because Britain has relied for so long on components coming from outside the EU, like Japan or Turkey. Now, when Britain was in the EU, that wasn't a problem because the EU, of course, had this global free trade relationship with Japan or, or Turkey. But on this occasion, the EU said, no, you can't have that. And David Frost had to go back to the car industry and say, we're going to have to start sourcing component parts from somewhere else or, or to make them ourselves, because that's going to be a problem in, in the free trade relationship. What does this have to do then with, with Northern Ireland? If the EU were to give Northern Ireland a derogation and say, OK, we don't mind if bits of machines that are made in Northern Ireland form part of a product in the South and then go off to some partner country around the world. If we offer that to Northern Ireland, the danger then is the UK will say, OK, you're, you're offering this cumulation pass to Northern Ireland. Why can't you offer it to us as well in the rest of the UK? And the reason the EU is so determined to resist this in the negotiations is there is a fear, and and Michel Barnier has articulated this fear on a number of occasions, that the UK would become this manufacturing hub off the European shore, making products, sourcing materials that come from all over the world and saying, this is a British product and we want access into the single market. And that has been one of the gravest concerns, I think, for the EU, that Britain would use fair means and foul, as they would see it, to become this manufacturing threat to European car makers, for example. And I think the reason why the EU suddenly turned cold on this issue for Northern Ireland is because they simply didn't want to have the UK get any kind of chink of light in the negotiations and use the Northern Ireland issue as a potential wedge to to seek some concessions from the EU. Right. Well, finally then, Tony, given that, you know, this was foreseen, it would make you, I suppose, to some degree wonder how this protocol was signed up to. Maybe it was signed up to in a hurry if if it is going to have these knock-on effects. But we are where we are, as the expression goes. And where does it go from here? What can the Irish government do on behalf of its domestic industry and and their partners in Northern Ireland? What kind of leverage do they have? And what's the reception like to Irish approaches within Europe? Clearly, business organisations have been pushing this, as I say, like right from the from the get-go. When they were starting to get a bit of negative pushback from the European Commission, they decided to channel their lobbying efforts through Dublin. Now, for example, the Irish Whiskey Association has been lobbying a lot with the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Business and Enterprise, to try and get this issue on the radar. And the government has been quietly doing this, talking both to the European Commission and to the British government. Now, my understanding is that there have been very high level contacts between the government and people like Michel Barnier on this and Maros Shevchevich, who is the EU's person on the Joint Committee. And what I'm told is that there is sympathy there for this issue. But again, the vibe came back from those individuals that, look, this is just too sensitive at the moment. You know, the EU is not going to burn negotiating currency with the British on something that affects a a very tiny part 
of the global economy, even though it's a part of the EU which has been given an inordinate amount of love and affection and and attention over the past three years. In the white heat of the trade negotiations, it seems that the the EU did not want to to start opening up this issue because, you know, given that Boris Johnson, like one of his big selling points to unionists was, hey, look, Northern Ireland is still going to be in the UK's customs territory. That means Northern Ireland companies can can make full use of glorious buccaneering UK free trade agreements around the world. To say that on the one hand and then maybe a year later, the UK would say, okay, those Northern Ireland companies can stay in the EU trade orbit and avail of these EU trade agreements. You can see how that would be embarrassing for the British government. Having said that, what I'm told is that the UK is sympathetic to this issue. You know, they know that this could disrupt these very valuable and iconic all-island supply chains. But again, not tonight, Josephine. You know, not right this minute. This is not the time to raise this. So, my feeling is that it will be raised again. It is. It has kind of crept its way onto the agenda of the joint committee. There have been some preliminary discussions, but I don't think it's going to be resolved before the end of the year. But certainly if there is a free trade agreement negotiated between both sides in the next couple of weeks, then that could make the climate a lot easier. And, you know, we could get a situation maybe in six months time where There is a side agreement where both the EU and UK say, let's visit all our trade partners and say, look, we want to preserve these all-island supply chains on the island of Ireland and let's allow Northern Ireland products to keep participating and benefiting from EU free trade agreements, the ones that already exist and the new ones that are coming up. And this is important for an industry like the dairy sector because they are always trying to diversify their markets because of Brexit. And these new free trade agreements like EU Australia, EU New Zealand, they are going to want to get access to those agreements and they are going to want to try and maintain the the model of efficiency and the, the, the value chain model that they have on the island of Ireland where you get millions of litres of milk produced in Northern Ireland, goes across the border to be processed and then forms part of a, a wider uh, and very valuable product. Right. Well, if the listeners have made it this far with us, a listener, I'd, I, I would advise you to pour yourself a large drink of Irish cream liqueur, which neatly combines all of the products we have talked about in exactly. today's episode. Whiskey. I've, I've got one uh, to hand here, uh, just in case you, you offered. One podcast in a glass and then go back and listen to the whole thing again. And it'll probably increase your understanding with each sip or not, as the case may be. But Tony, what's coming well, up? If, uh, Sorry, go well, on. I, I, just on that point, this is very complicated. And, and you know, the, the rules of international trade are devilishly complicated. However, I've written a longish piece on this, which will appear on the RTE website uh, tomorrow, Saturday. So people can can go to that if they're when they're confused, not if they're confused. They they can print Um, it out. So next week, column in Brexit land, a lot happening. Obviously, the negotiations are ongoing. The EU's deadline of the end of October is tomorrow, Saturday. So let's see if something lands in the free trade negotiations next week. What I'm told is that both sides are progressing through the issues and they are jointly drafting legal text, which is obviously a big step forward, as as we discussed last week. The other issue is that British government have until Monday to respond to the legal action taken by the European Commission at the beginning of October, the the letter of infringement over the internal market bill. So it'll be interesting to see if and how the British government respond to this threat of legal action from the Commission on the internal market bill. Also on that score, the House of Lords 
is possibly going to vote on the uh, offending clauses in the Internal Market Bill next week. And that is going to be a very interesting moment because there's been huge opposition in the House of Lords to those clauses which essentially would overturn elements of the Northern Ireland Protocol and in so doing breach international law. So plenty of good old grubby politics for next week's episode in that case. All right, thanks Tony. That's it from me, Colm O'Mungain, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.